episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. We honour their histories, cultures and traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I'm your host, Savas Savas. For a quarter of a century, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences for some of Australia's most extravagant and intimate soirees. Food connects us. It connects us to people, to places and to moments in time. These memories shape who we are and what we value. So come and break bread with my guests and I as they share their food memories, revealing far more about themselves than what they've tasted. Recently, Polyform Australia and I came together to create a live audience recording of Plated Three Food Memories with one of Australia's most delicious voices in food, Alice Saslavsky. This episode is a mashup of two evenings recorded in Polyform Sydney and Melbourne showrooms. While Alice served up her memories, we served out the food of her memories for the audience to eat. Hence the sound of crockery and cutlery in the background, the audience tucking in with great gusto. So what you're about to hear is a virtual taste of the good stuff. Alice's three food memories from Melbourne, Georgia and beyond, championing important causes of food literacy and a couple of insights I most certainly wasn't expecting. You'll also hear about Alice's MasterChef masterpiece in Italy. And finally, a hot tip for parents struggling with kids around the dinner table. But let's start at the very beginning, when Alice and her family were not long emigrated to Australia from Georgia, and how surprised and delighted they were by processed and packaged food. Um, It was the continental pasta Alfredo that you could get in a box, in a sachet, That was one of our first experiences, right, of Australian food. And growing up in Georgia, growing up in the Soviet Union, ultra-processed food was a luxury item. We grew our own food. We made everything from scratch because there was no other option. And so when we came to Australia and saw these shelves full of boxes and sachets and packets, that was something that was an indulgence. And one of the first things that I was given, one of the first responsibilities that I was given in the kitchen was to stir the boiling water into the sachet in the pot to create this pasta alfredo. And I can still remember how proud I felt that I was given that responsibility. And if somebody had said to me at that time, that's not cooking, or that's not healthy, you shouldn't be eating that, I would have felt shame, I would have felt like I wasn't enough, and I would have felt like uh, invalidated in my experience. But none of that happened. And I think that that's something that I continue to know and to remember, to keep in my mind's eye, because um, it's very easy for foodies to get on our hoity-toity high horse and say, yes, but why aren't you making your own almond milk? Or, (laughs) are those asparagus? I mean, actually, no, you should definitely be buying Australian asparagus. However, you, you get what I'm saying. I think that we should kind of meet people where they are, and that's why I really wanted the first cab off the rank to be, you know, this. How old were you when you arrived in Australia? I was six. And why did your family come here? 
for a very similar reason to what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, so it was 1991, uh, and the Soviet Union was, you know, Pidistroika, it was the end of the Soviet Union as we knew it. And even kind of in the years leading up, there was a lot of civil unrest. And my parents, being Jewish actually, um, was already a real, um, put, uh, really hampered their opportunities in that country, in that regime. And so they knew that in order for us to have opportunities, it's a very similar migrant story. You know, they left for us. They left with nothing. And when I say nothing, they left with the hope that when we got to Singapore, that they could borrow money to get to Australia. You know, they had to, it was a loan from friends in Adelaide, friends of friends in Adelaide that afforded them and us, me, the tickets to come to, to first Sydney and then to Melbourne. How old were your parents? My parents were in their mid-30s. So young? Young. My mum was 36 when she came to Australia. And how many children did she come here with? Two. So, okay, I'm thinking of 36-year-olds now. Like, that is a big thing, to literally leave everything behind. Everything. And, and what, did you, what did it feel like for you as being a young... Did you know what was going on? I had no idea. For me, it was a real adventure. And I think reflecting on it and knowing how afraid and um, anxious my parents would have been feeling, they never let that show. And um, we came here very much kind of feeling like this was a land of freedom and plenty. And I remember when we first came to Sydney, my um, parents were very much trying to find work for months and months to the point that they actually thought um, Dad was going to start driving a taxi. Mum went to the bank and tried to get a loan to open a Georgian restaurant. So what what uh, careers, what jobs did they have back in Georgia? They were academics. They wow. are. They're academics. So, wow. you know, my mum is in, like, applied mathematics. My dad's in computer science. Um, and still, so they ended up getting jobs, thankfully, in... Um, in know, their field? In their field, so at Monash University, which is why we ended up in Melbourne. But I remember the best story is my mum, when they went to the bank to get this loan to open a restaurant in Sydney and cook khachapuri and <laughs> Georgian food, the bank manager said, what sort of hospitality experience do you have? And they said, well, we've got, you know, these PhDs. <laughs> and he said, maybe stick to your day jobs. Um, so I think it was almost like food was always going to find me. It just took a couple more decades. Listening to that story now, in my head, I'm watching that film, you know, A Beautiful Life, as that lovely mm. father makes it escaping. The, is it, was it, I'm going to get teary. It was exactly that. Ugh. Exactly that, Sava. And I remember, you know, we would walk on Bondi Beach every night and I had no idea how much my parents were grafting and working and, um, you know, my experience of going shopping for toys was walking through the streets, you know, down the nature strips of Bondi, um, fossicking through the hard rubbish because people were throwing out brand new, you know, practically new jigsaw puzzles and, and board games and dolls and that was abundance for me. That was joy for me to do that. And we used to get kind of, you know, bags of clothing that were donated to us and there was this beautiful dress that I still remember wearing. Tell us about the dress. It was, it was shades of pink um, and it was very, I feel like it was very taffeta. There was a little, maybe even organza. Uh, whatever it was, it made me feel like a princess. I will never forget the kindness of the community and the same goes, you know, when we moved to Melbourne and it's something that we now pay forward. You know, my brother is based in Adelaide and there's a, a big Ukrainian um, 
a migrant community there who are refugees. And he has, um, through his business, he's employed a Ukrainian refugee and kind of is upskilling her to be sort of a business development manager. And he said to me, you know, I feel like I'm paying it back. What do they do these days, Mum and Dad? Um, so Dad is um, still, so he's moved on from Monash. He went to CSIRO, so he was at the CSIRO. He's now at Deakin. Uh, he works in the Internet of Things, so he works on, you know, there was the Smart Cities Project in Geneva. He worked on that sort of stuff. A lot of, like... If I'm honest, a lot of stuff that I absolutely do not understand and have chosen not to understand. It's too much for my mind palace to retain. Uh, and my mum is retired. And I say that for the podcast, I say that with inverted commas because she's still supervising eight PhD students because they still had to finish their degrees. So, um, they, you know, they keep themselves busy um, and they've got grandchildren now. And what's her cooking like these days? Uh, her cooking is very experimental um, and I am very inspired by my mother. She's very much a um, make, them, make more with less kind of cook. She won't let anything go to waste. So if something goes mouldy in the fridge, you just scrape the mould off. You know, it's still good. <laughs> it's still good. And in fact, it's sometimes even better. So if you've got some dodgy dairy in your fridge, like whether it's yogurt or milk or sour cream, she will make the best pancakes ever. You know, they're called alajiki. And actually what happens, if you think about a buttermilk pancake, the reason why that works so well is because the acid reacts really well with the bicarb and fluffs them up. So why go out and fork out for buttermilk when you can use the dodgy milk and the kefir and the yogurt, just scrape it off and it's all good. Your next memory, which is about to be served now, is from Georgia, number two. It is. Um, and I really feel like before the pandemic, Georgia was on its way to being the New Mexico for food tourism. Basically, it's at the uh, intersection of, of, the, of Eastern Europe, uh, Western Europe, the Middle East, Asia, so you've got, and the Silk Road, so you've got Northern Indian spicing, fresh herbs from Southeast Asia, um, the cheese of Western Europe, the Huns came through and they left, you think about Shaolong Bao, um, you know, the soupy dumplings, they left that, but just imagine that, just huge palm-sized dumplings called hinkaile, which you flip over and you suck out the soup and then you eat it and you leave the nubs uh, because then at the end you count the nubs and the, the one with most nubs is the most manly. Uh, so that's <laughs> Georgia for you. But throughout the uh, Soviet era, Georgia also became the fruit bowl of Russia. And it was very much an important part of the Soviet empire in terms of being a jewel in the fresh produce crown, you know, very fertile soils, the wines, it was the birth, it is the birthplace of wine. Uh, but as a result, Georgia was also a place that was very tightly held by the Soviet Union. And in 1989, uh, the Georgians tried to uh, fight for their independence. And by fight, I mean that there were protests in the streets and those protests turned violent and the Soviet forces came in and quelled the rebellion. Uh, and I had no idea. All I knew is that my images of Georgia, beyond sitting in my grandfather's dacha, you know, in his garden, eating figs and persimmons off the trees, is that I had these very strong images of soldiers in the streets with guns by their sides. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago where I was reading a book called The Eighth Life, um, an amazing, epic 
kind of like War and Peace, but set in Georgia, eight generations of Georgian women. And I got to 1989 and she talks about this protest and the fact that people were killed in Rustaveli Boulevard. And that was where my kindergarten was. And I said to mum, we walked that street every single day. Did that, was, were we there? And she said, oh yeah, that happened. But you know, it happened at night, so you weren't there. But what I do know is that the anxiety, the fear, the guns, the soldiers that would stand out the front of our kindergarten smoking um, in a menacing way, that all was absorbed by little old us. And the way that it was expressed by four, five, you know, five-year-old me is that I would come to kindergarten and they would feed us this stuff called schlaplap, which was kind of like uh, soupy rice with gristly meat, um, and I couldn't keep it down. I, I would regurgitate this lunch and they would call my mum and she would have to come and get me from her work and then walk me back to her office. And she would make me a risol or katleta on rye bread with tomato sauce. And she never shamed me. She never said, what are you doing? Or you have to stay at school, you have to eat that. She just protected me and made me feel safe. And so this dish is that. It's an interpretation of that dish. It's the fact that she knew how important it was that she didn't, in that moment, um, leave me alone. When you, um, that's heavy. heavy. When you, yeah, when you, when you turn on the telly now or scroll through your phone and you see what's going on at that part of the world, what do you feel, Alice? It's weird. So in February, when the war, when the conflict first started, um, I was shooting Joy. So I'm trying to shoot, I'm trying to kind of harness all of the joyfulness of me and channel it into this book. I had this whole team that were relying on me, and yet the world was crumbling around me. And I thought that I could handle it. I thought if I just kind of shut it off, you know, I can support and amplify and do all, of, all those things, but not kind of really engage. Um, but my friend Jamila Rizvi, who um, hosts the Weekend Briefing, had had me sort of do a Weekend Briefing episode maybe a week before the conflict started. And she said, hey, we just need to record like a bit of like a topical kind of like, how are you feeling, you know, just on the top to, to make it feel more relevant. And I said, sure, sure, sure. You know, I didn't realise uh, what would happen. Because as soon as I went into the back room to kind of give her a few moments of my time, I, I got two words in and I just started sobbing, heaving sobs trying to express the fact that in this conflict, there is no us and them, you know, it's us and us. I am Russian, Ukrainian, Lithuanian who grew up in Georgia, who came to Australia. So, and people feel like that all over the world, which is why it's even more heartrending. You're a very hopeful person. Where is the hope in all of this for you? I am a hopeful person, Sava, because there's no point feeling hopeless. There's always something that you can do to feel like you're moving forward. You know, no matter what is going on, you can choose to rise or you can choose to let it, you know, sink into a hole. I really do believe that deeply and I know that from my life. I've seen that play out in my family. I've seen that play out around me. I've met enough people to know. Um, you know, there's an, there's an allegory. It's from Catch Me If You Can, but I love it. Two mice <coughs> fell into a tub of cream. One mouse said, oh, I'm in a tub of cream, goodbye cruel world, and drowned. The other mouse said, oh, I'm in a tub of cream, 
what am I going to do to get out of this tub of cream? So it started kicking its little mousy legs. And over time, it kicked the cream into butter and climbed on out of the bucket. So we always have a choice, you know? Um, I think that's kind of what I've learnt in my life. And I remember I went to Happiness and its Causes. It was a conference in sort of 2013, 2014. Uh, Bob Brown was speaking. He'd just written his book on optimism. And he said exactly that. Um, and he was speaking about climate change and saying that often he's asked, how can he maintain hope under these circumstances? And he said, because you don't open a cafe expecting it to fail. And we can't live in this world. We can't live on this planet just assuming that, well, you know, planet's gone to hell anyway. No, we do our best. So, you know, hopefully that hope rubs off on more and more people. So the whole thing of food, it nurtures you, it carries you, it supports you. And then you use that as a vehicle to support and help other people. Is that right? It's pretty oh. profound, Sabbath. No, no, I'm just listening. <laughs> I'd say so, but I also think that food is a really easy way to connect with people. You know, hook them in. Um, and yes, you're right. I was just at a conference in Dublin, uh, Food on the Edge, and it was all about big ideas. And one of the uh, people that spoke, Carolyn Steele, has written a book called Cytopia. And she talks about the fact that it's very difficult to think about um, aspiring to a utopia. But if we think of Cytopia, which is a world that is centred on food and our appreciation and understanding of food, which we all have to eat, right? We all choose what we put on our plates every day, multiple times a day. We can make a lot of choices that can add up to big change. So that's probably why I work in food, because it can feel so small and so inconsequential, but actually, at its heart, we all eat. And we can all affect change if we all choose to eat in ways that are conscientious, conscious, uh, you know, conspicuously moving towards the right way. I was just trying to be alliterative. That one didn't work. <laughs> I think we should move on to your third food memory now. Oh, right. Uh, I wanted to share a dessert memory with you that very much brings you into my life and my obsession. I get fixated on things and then I can't stop eating them until they become less exciting, let's face it. However, when it comes to cheesecake, that is an exception to the rule because as far as I'm concerned, there is never enough cheesecake. Never enough cheesecake. In 2014, um, on my honeymoon, we went to San Sebastian, which if you're a food person, Ugh. you've probably either been there, it's on your list. It is one of the most sort of foodie destinations because it is just, you know, there's uh, the Spanish sort of, the Spaniards have tapas, the Basque have pinchos. And you kind of start at about eight and you finish at about 10.30 and it's like a crawl. It's like a wine bar crawl every night. And every night for two weeks, we would finish our crawl at La Vigna for their cheesecake. It's the Basque cheesecake. I'm sure you've had it by now somewhere in Melbourne. Burnt Basque cheesecake. It is wobbly in the middle. It is fudgy through the kind of the two-third point. And on the ends, it's caramelised and quite kind of firm. I could not get enough of it. Could not get enough of it. And I came home and said to my friend Danny Vallant, who many of you would know as well, Danny, um, I need to tell you about this cheesecake because I knew that Danny was going to San Sebastian a couple of months later and I said, you need to bring me the recipe. It was like a golden fleece situation. <laughs> bring me the recipe for the cheesecake, which is exactly what Danny did. She went, 
to San Sebastian. She brought back the cheesecake recipe. Uh, she shared it with the world. It went viral as Danny Valance Basque Cheesecake. Uh, which is so great because I get a glow every time that I see somebody bake Danny's Basque. I think, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of, it's a shared, it's a shared love. Um, but that, to me, is like a quintessential food memory because it takes me right back to one of the most joyful kind of moments of my life because it was just so deeply unashamedly foodie. Which is a lovely wrap and a lovely way to finish. It brings us to your social cause, something that you're very passionate about. Food literacy, you know, I believe that everybody deserves the right and the opportunity to read food the way that they can letters and numbers. And that it's it just as important, if not more so, that they do. Because it's one thing to be able to read a story, but to be able to cook a meal for yourself, let alone for your family and for your friends, is something that brings so much joy to, to me, and I know will bring so much joy to, to everybody. And it doesn't have to be something that is only afforded to those who can afford it. My parents came to this country with absolutely nothing. My afternoon tea, besides the continental pasta Alfredo, which was a treat, may I add, uh, was borscht. You know, my mum on a Sunday would go in the afternoon to the bargain shelves and buy the bruised looking root vegetables and just cut those bruises off and make us a nutritious vegetable soup that we would eat every night that week. And that would be the love language. That would be our touch point to say, hey, we're here and we're thinking of you. And it's something that I think that everybody can have the opportunity to, to, to have at their, you know, at their fingertips. I really do believe that. And I was a, I, I hosted a panel, I moderated a panel with the key stakeholders across um, multiple industries who were calling for bipartisan support of a program that encourages all Australians or, or empowers all Australians to be able to cook for themselves and to eat more fresh fruit and vegetables. We all have the capacity within our spheres of influence to do something about it. Whether you're a parent with children who are going to a school that hasn't yet heard of Phenomenon, or whether you are in the corporate sphere and you have the capacity to say next time that someone asks, hey, what cause should we support? It might be Food Bank, it might be Second Bite, it might be Fair Share, whoever it is, putting more emphasis and just kind of gaining more share of voice for this conversation is clearly something that gets me up on my soapbox, and it always will. And I couldn't finish without asking Alice about her time on MasterChef and hang about because how to take the stress of dinner time with the kids segues off the back of this. So the experience culminated. You know, all of this stress of the six months uh, was rewarded with a trip to Italy for the top ten. Uh, yeah, we had the best season ever. So we went to Italy, we ended up in Rome, and the uh, first challenge that we were told on the plane was going to be cooking for one of Italy's best chefs in a very conceptual way. And I had seen Matt Preston and David McIntosh, who was then the executive producer, at uh, the Theatre of Ideas at the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival when Massimo Bottura presented. And I said, are we cooking for Massimo Bottura? And they said, no, as if we'd do that. And I just sort of put, put that out of my mind. And then that day, the challenge that was set was walk the streets of Italy, take photographs of what you see, and then use that as inspiration to create a dish that showcases Italy on a plate, in an image on a plate. 
And Massimo had talked about the intersection of culture and art and history, and you can't understand food until you understand culture. You can't understand history until you understand food, all of those intersections. So even though I wasn't going to be cooking for Massimo, I still kind of took that to heed. So we were allowed to sort of go back to our rooms and have a think, and then the next day we would cook. It was a partner challenge, and we still hadn't really come up with anything. And that night, in the middle of the night, I had this epiphany, a vision of this dish, which was the cobblestones of Rome, so squid ink, gnocchi, with a bitter lemon emulsion from the lemon trees that were in bloom and in season, and these carchofi alla Judea, these deep-fried Roman artichokes, which spoke of not just the legacy of Rome, but also the legacy that the Jews of Rome had, had left there because after, you know, that essentially the same reason why we were in Georgia is why some Jews were in Italy, because we were scattered around the world. And I didn't realise that there was actually this legacy of Jewish food in Italy, in Rome, that was really, really strong. And most of the deep-fried stuff that you love in Italian food is Jewish food. So that was really cool. And uh, then the next day, out comes the chef. Who are we cooking for? Massimo Bottura. <laughs> and I was the only one who knew who he was. <laughs> and so then I thought, ooh. And, uh, and then I won the challenge with that very dish, which was phenomenal, amazing. And then there was a huge bout of gastro that went through all the crew. And we were stranded in Rome. In fact, this was 2012 and people were in masks on the minibuses. So we were trendsetters. And uh, during that kind of hiatus, we were allowed to go out in pairs. And I went to the Jewish Quarter to a restaurant called Nonna Betta and met a, a couple who were Holocaust survivors who had opened this restaurant in the 50s and they served me their carchofi alla Judea. And that was a real moment. I deeply believe in the notion of flow and being in the right place and the universe speaking to you if you just listen, if you just open your ears and stop being so afraid. And that was a real moment of you are exactly where you should be and doing exactly what you should be doing. What is it like being on that set? Like what's the pressure and the stress? The biggest pressure and stress is not even on set, it's offset. You're living with people for six months, locked in, and they cast you specifically because you're different to everybody else. So imagine all of your friends are probably a lot like you. You have similar values, you have similar interests, you have similar schedules. Now imagine being placed in a house with 23 people who have specifically different lifestyles and attitudes to you. So there would be people who said to me, can you just shut up until I've had my coffee? Or can you just like tone it down? So it was a lot of that. And I think that was the, the stressful part. But it also, when you are forced to continue to question how important you, your sort of truth is, at some point you kind of push to your edge and you find your centre. So that's what I think that process did. And it also taught me to care less about what other people thought of me and be less of a people pleaser. And, uh, you know, if somebody doesn't like me, that's kind of their problem, right? Like, I mean, sometimes if somebody doesn't like me, maybe I could change something or whatever. Like, feedback is valuable. Feedback is a gift. However, not everybody is going to like you all the time. And that's not your problem. If they aren't up for that, that's fine. It's a bit like the division of responsibility with feeding kids, right? You serve up the food, and if they don't want it, you go, cool, no worries, 
you eat it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, except I fight those battles. You're not leaving until you finish. I really do. I'm really worried that they making sure that they get everything. I don't want them to be hungry. Okay, we need okay, to talk. Offline. Really? This is important. <laughs> I think lots of people want to hear this. Well... Oh, okay, I'll tell you one thing. So I just yeah, recorded from... a podcast for RN called Tiny Tasters and there's episodes, it's all about the ages and stages of life and what you can know about food. They're little snacky, you know, five to seven minute snacky podcast episodes. Pregnancy, infancy, childhood, teenagedom, adulthood... And each stage kind of explores something. And for kids, the number one thing to be explored is that it's actually more about the language that you use around food and it's about offering it and then letting them have the agency. Because as parents, we get really caught up worrying that they're going to eat enough. You need to trust that they are going to eat enough, Saba. So they will tell me when they've had enough. They will tell you. And they don't even need to tell you. They don't even need to explicitly tell you. You put the food sharing style on the table and you let them serve themselves. You put some comfortable, safe foods that you know they're going to eat and then maybe the odd couple of things that are an introductory food and then you eat that food with them. That's, that's crucial, key. If you think about siblings as well, sometimes, most of the time, one sibling will want to be different to the other sibling. So parents will often say to me, oh, my... My first one's a really good eater, but the other one's really fussy. It's because every time that that child arcs up about food, they know that that is like the biggest button they can press to get your attention. And any time that you then say, oh, you're the fussy one, then you're labelling that child and giving them an identity hook that they don't need. That's baggage that they will carry for the rest of their lives. So you can think that in your mind. You can go, okay, this, is ch this child is a little bit more discerning than the other child. Maybe they're their palate is a, little bit, is a little bit kind of more honed, a little bit more sensitive. That's them. You don't have to say that out loud. A lot of the scripts that you're uttering are just scripts that were uttered to you. So it's time for us to unpick a lot of that stuff because it didn't work for us. It's meant that we've ended up with a lot of emotional baggage around food. So let's not let that end up within our children as well and their psyches. How adorable is Alice? There's a weekly shopping list of reasons to get behind the initiatives she champions, not to mention that she thinks I am Australia's next George Clooney. For all things Alice, including her recipes, a link to her Phenomenon podcast and her books, check out alicesaslavsky.com or Alice in Frames on Insta. My heartfelt thanks to our dear friends at Polyform for realising this experience, to my beloved plated folk for creating the food in Sydney and Clover, our partners in Melbourne, for doing the same there. Plated Three Food Memories is produced in partnership with World Stories, edited by Lauren McWhirter and original score by Russell Torrance. I'll be back again next year to break more bread with a whole lot of new guests, so be sure to follow Plated by Saver on Instagram and flick your podcast B notification to the on position to keep up to date on all things Plated. In the meantime, I invite you to go back and listen to some of your favourite Three Food Memories episodes and DM me. I'd love to hear from you. Bye for now and order kali. Mm -hmm.